Sometimes we get to choose our reward. What I mean is we're offered not one prize, but several prizes, and we get to pick. When I was growing up, TV game shows would often work like that. So if you won, you'd get to choose between maybe a holiday in Barbados or a new car. I heard about a man who won a golf competition, and he got to choose between a sum of money, I think it was about 15,000 pounds, or a lifetime supply of Murphy's Irish Stout. He chose the Murphy's. Golf competitions and game shows deal with small-time rewards, though, small-time prizes. But the Bible moves this whole choose your reward thing to a whole new level for us. Jesus said this, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Our soul is that part of us that will live forever and ever either with God or apart from him. And Jesus is asking us to consider which prize means more to us. Gaining this whole world in the present or gaining eternity with God in the future. And maybe we'd say, well, I'm not really aiming for the whole world. But Jesus' point is, suppose you could have success and possessions and prestige now up to the value of everything this world could give you. If you could have that, would you give up your eternal future in order to have it? Which means more to you? Because it's highly unlikely you can have both. That question from Jesus sets the scene for the passage we're going to look at this morning. We're continuing in 1 Peter, and today we're going to look at chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 1219, and in the larger print Bibles, 1889. Before we read this, let's remind ourselves of what has come before this in the letter. Peter's writing to Christians, and the very first verse of this letter, he called Christians elect exiles. That's a pretty striking combination of words. Peter wants Christians to know we are special to God. We are elect or chosen. And at the same time, he wants us to know we are strangers to this world that rejects God. We live in this world, but we're exiles in it. It will never quite be home to us if we're Christian. And in the last few weeks, we've been in a section of the letter where Peter shows us how to live as elect exiles. He says we're to be good citizens. In fact, we are to be exemplary citizens. The fact that we're exiles here does not mean we're to opt out of society. Now, Peter says we're to live good lives in society. We're to be examples of respect in the way we relate to our government, 
in the way we go about our work, in the way we live at home with those closest to us. Our lives as Christians are to be visibly good. Every area of our lives, public and private. And Peter has told us the purpose of all that is so people around us will be attracted to our God. Peter is calling us to something that's hard. It's hard to live unselfishly. It's hard to show respect even when people treat us unfairly. Peter knows it's hard to live the way he's calling us to live. And so in our passage this morning, he moves on to speak about reward. He says, consider the end result if you don't live this way. And consider the result if you do. So let's read chapter 3, verses 8 to the end of the chapter, verse 22. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it, Only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels authorities and powers in submission to him. This is God's word. At certain key moments in this letter, Peter stops and he backs up his message by pointing us to Jesus Christ. And you'll have noticed he does that again here at the end of these verses we read. Peter reminds us 
Jesus is Lord of all. But before we get to that, we need to see why Peter ends by pointing us to Jesus. He does it because in the first part of the passage, he challenges us. He says, choose your reward and your suffering. When we started looking at this letter, we saw it was being circulated across a very large area. It would have been delivered to many different groups of Christians, spread over what today is northern Turkey. These were little communities of believers in Jesus, maybe only a handful of them in each place. And Peter knows if they're going to persevere as foreigners and exiles, they're going to need each other. They're going to have to support and encourage one another. So he says in verse 8, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. All of you means whatever your circumstances in life, whatever your stage of life. You may remember in the verses just before this, Peter has been talking to those who are married. Earlier, he mentioned those who were slaves. Not everyone in the church is going to be in those situations. But everyone in the church is to care for one another. Each person is to be sensitive to what their brothers and sisters in Christ are going through. The church has always been made up of different kinds of people from different generations. That's a great strength. That's how the church is supposed to be. But it does mean we have to be on our toes to make sure we're helping one another, to make sure we're all pulling in the same direction instead of pulling apart from one another. And what we're to help one another with is living good lives. In verse 9, I think Peter has moved on from our relationships with one another to speak about our relationships with those outside the church. I say that because verse 9 summarizes what he's been saying since chapter 2, verse 11. As we seek to live for Jesus, we may well suffer evil. We may well receive insults. Peter expects those to come from outside the church, not inside it. He's calling us to help one another get our responses right so that we don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. In the church, we're teammates. We're not rivals. So we're to work as a team, listening to one another, praying for one another, spurring one another on to honor God in every area of our lives. And we're to work hard at reminding one another of the reward that's ahead of us. Look again at verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. We live the Christian life because it honors God. Yes. We live the Christian life because it's the right thing to do. Yes. And we live the Christian life because we've been promised a reward at the end of it. Back in chapter 1, Peter spoke about an, an inheritance 
that is kept in heaven for us. An inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And I'm sure that's what he means here when he talks about inheriting a blessing. We inherit this in the future. And we will inherit it for eternity. It's a reward we can never lose. What kind of people inherit this reward? Peter explains it in verse 10. Whoever would love life and see good days, in the context that applies to eternal life and eternal good days, whoever would love and see those things must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What kind of people inherit God's imperishable blessing? Those who keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. Those who turn from evil and do good. Those who seek peace and pursue it. It's the way of life Peter has been calling us to since chapter 2, verse 11. And it's a way of life that will make us stand out in this world. It's a way of life that will cause some people to join us and glorify God along with us. And it's a way of life that will end in God's eternal blessing. Isn't that the reward we want? Isn't that more valuable to us than gaining the whole world? Isn't that more valuable than popularity now or an easy life now? Those are the kind of rewards you and I can be tempted to choose. They're short term. Often they're within easy reach for us. In the short term, you can often get ahead if you use a little bit of deceit. You can often be popular just by going along with what everyone else is doing and saying. Peter says to us, aim higher than that. Go for the greatest reward. Don't settle for the short-term stuff. Choose eternal reward. And then Peter says, in the interest of full and honest disclosure, I have to tell you, if you choose eternal reward, you may also be choosing short-term suffering. Look at verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? In other words, wouldn't it be outrageous, wouldn't it be upside down if you suffered for doing good? How back to front would that be? But, verse 14, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Living a life that honors God leads to eternal blessing. 
and it may lead to suffering in the short term. When we pursue peace, some people might see us as easy targets. When we don't get involved in deceit, we may find ourselves frozen out of the in-group at school or at work. People may threaten us and speak maliciously against us just because we live differently. And that gets under their skin. Notice Peter doesn't say that will happen. He says it might happen. So we must decide now, ahead of time, which suffering are we going to choose? Are we willing to take the short-term suffering because we're committed to obeying God? Or will we turn our back on God to avoid the short-term suffering? Peter says if we do, we're choosing eternal suffering. That's what Peter means in verse 17. We might not suffer for doing good, but if that is in God's plan for us, and it's much better to go through that short-term suffering than to face the punishment that comes from doing evil. And I think we have to understand that as God's punishment. Back in verse 12, at the end of the verse, Peter explained that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If we side with this world in its defiance of God, then one day we will face God as our enemy, not as our friend. And the result of that will be eternal suffering for us, an eternity in hell. So, choose your reward and choose your suffering. If you want the short-term rewards that come from going along with the crowd, then you're choosing eternal suffering. If you go after the eternal reward that comes to those who live for God, you may well be choosing short-term suffering. Maybe that feels like a tough choice, but it's not really. Peter says in verse 14, even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Eternal blessings far outweigh short-term suffering. And when you and I grasp that, when that truth sinks into our minds and hearts, then we won't fear their threats. Whoever they happen to be, whoever is on our case because we stand out as a Christian, we can answer those people with gentleness and respect, verse 15. Explaining why we live the way we do. Letting them know about our hope. Most people have no hope beyond the short term. That's why they live the way they do. They think today really is all there is for them. So why wouldn't they bend the rules to get ahead today? Why wouldn't they cheat and deceive to get short-term rewards? And so if you and I live with the hope of eternal reward, it will lead to questions. There might be unkind questions, of course. There might be scornful, jeering questions. 
But you and I will have opportunities to explain our hope. And Peter says to us, take those opportunities. Speak about your eternal hope. Sure, they might laugh all the more at you. They might hate you all the more. But some of them might listen to you. And they might end up glorifying God on the day he visits us. Sometimes as Christians we think, if I haven't been on a course called 10 Steps to Sharing Your Faith or 5 Steps to Converting Your Village, then I'm not really qualified to share my faith. If I haven't memorized the whole Bible, then I'd better not say anything in case I get muddled up. Peter says to us, rubbish. If you live to honor God simply, then you will stand out. People will ask, why are you like that? So just tell them with gentleness and respect. Some of them won't get it. Some of them will get angry. But some of them might join you. What exactly are we to tell them? Well, Peter says, give the reason for the hope you have. We know what our hope is. It's the hope of eternal reward. But what is the reason for our hope? Why do we have confidence there's an eternal reward ahead of us? Well, that's what Peter explains in verses 18 to 22. This is what we can tell people. Christ did the work to guarantee our reward. Peter tells us two things about Jesus in these verses. He died to pay for our sin, and he rose to reign completely. Peter spends more time on the second of these, but the first is every bit as crucial. Christ died to pay for our sin. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. We said earlier, those who live for God will inherit a blessing. And here, Peter shows how any of us can even begin to live for God. It's because Jesus died to bring us to God. By ourselves, you and I cannot be good. We cannot be righteous. We might think we are. Many people think they are. But if we do, it's because we have the wrong standard for goodness and righteousness. Our standard tends to be better than Hitler or better than whoever the latest villain is you can fill in the blank I know some of you are thinking of an American president with a funny hairstyle but that's what we do we set the bar really low for ourselves better than him over there better than her but that kind of standard well most of us can feel good about ourselves but what counts is God's standard. And by his standard, none of us is good or righteous because he sees our selfishness. He sees our pride and our greed, even if no one else does. He sees us as we really are. And that is not good news for us. But verse 18 says, Jesus suffered for our sins. He truly was righteous. In chapter 1, Peter called him a lamb 
without blemish or defect. Perfect. Jesus had no sin of his own to suffer for, but he took the suffering our sins deserve. And he did it once for all. It never needs to be repeated. Why did he do it? Peter says he did it to bring us to God. Our sin cuts us off from God. But by paying for our sin, Jesus opened a way for us to be reconciled to God. In fact, Jesus not only opens the way, he is the way. He brings us to God. He leads us into God's presence. And we can be accepted there and welcomed purely because of what Jesus did on the cross. That is good news for us. And so if you're a Christian and someone asks you, why are you sure there's an eternal reward in front of you? Here's the very first thing you can say. Jesus died to pay for my sin. And here's the second thing you can say. He rose to reign completely. When we read this uh, last bit of the passage, it probably made our heads spin if we were concentrating. We've got imprisoned spirits mentioned here. We've got Noah. We've got baptism. But the only thing missing from these verses is the kitchen sink. What on earth is this about? What's Peter telling us? Well, very simply, these verses are about Jesus' resurrection and its significance for us. This final section begins and ends by mentioning the resurrection. After we hear about Jesus' death for our sins, verse 18 goes on to say, he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit, or possibly made alive by the spirit. But the point is, Jesus conquered death. And it wasn't only death he conquered. He rose victorious over every other power in the universe. Not only human powers, but spiritual powers too. That's the point of mentioning these imprisoned spirits in verse 19. Who are they? Well, look at verse 20. He mentions the imprisoned spirits in verse 19 and then defines them as those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. We read about Noah in the book of Genesis. And just before Noah... We hear about what seem to be spiritual beings, maybe angels, who disobeyed God. There are a couple of other places where the New Testament seems to be referring to those particular rebellious spirits. They're now part of a demonic realm that opposes God and his people. And Peter mentions them here only to say the risen Jesus proclaimed something to them. What did he proclaim to them? His victory over them. How do we know that? Well, look at verse 22. It tells us Jesus has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Jesus' resurrection put him in an unrivaled position of power and authority not only over human powers, but over spiritual powers too. He is Lord 
of all. That is why, as Christians, we have unshakable hope for the future. That is how we know we'll inherit eternal blessings. Because the same Jesus who paid for our sin on the cross has risen in victory over every other power. There is no enemy in existence who can snatch our reward from us. They don't have the power to do that. No suffering our enemies can inflict on us can ever cause our inheritance to perish, spoil, or fade. No danger can prevent us from reaching our inheritance. That's the point Peter makes next. Having mentioned the spirits who rebelled in Noah's time, now he mentions the bit that normally comes to mind when we hear about Noah, a worldwide flood and an ark. In the middle of verse 20, Peter says, In the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. That was Noah and his wife, plus his three sons and their wives. But notice how Peter puts it. He says they were saved through water. In other words, they came through the water unharmed. Why? Because they had an ark. Everyone else was destroyed by the water. It's easy for us to forget the flood in Noah's day was God's judgment on a sinful world. And the reason you and I can forget that is because most of our children's Bible story books have sanitized the account of the flood. As they present it, it's about Noah escaping a bad storm with a few cuddly elephants and giraffes. But the actual flood was a horror story. It involved God wiping evil from the face of the earth. And that meant wiping out the human race who had given themselves up to evil. The only people saved from that divine judgment were the few who took refuge in the ark. Peter mentions that, but then he takes what seems like a strange turn in verse 21. He says, and this water, that's the flood water, symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter says the water you and I get baptized in is like the floodwaters of God's judgment. We all deserve to drown in God's judgment, just like the people in Noah's day. So if baptism showed things the way they deserve to be, we would go under this water and we'd not come up again. And the preacher would go to prison for drowning people in the pool. But that's not what happens in baptism. We do come up from the water because baptism is about being saved from God's judgment. We're saved because we have an ark too. In our case, it's not a boat. It's our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. 
He is our ark. He went into God's judgment. He took it in our place and he rose again. He came up through the judgment. When we take refuge in him, we are saved from God's judgment. Just as surely as Noah and his family were saved. So Peter goes on to clarify for us, baptism isn't about being cleaned up on the outside. It's not about removing dirt from the body. It's about the clear conscience we have because we're trusting in Jesus. People go through baptism not to say, I can overcome my sin. I can rise above God's judgment unharmed. No, baptism says, Jesus has overcome my sin. He went through God's judgment for me. He rose on the other side of that judgment, and I'm taking refuge in him. He is my salvation. He is my ark. That's the only way to have a clear conscience before God. The risen Lord of all has become our Lord. So as Christians, why do we live with hope? Why are we so confident of God's eternal reward? It's because Christ did the work to guarantee our reward. He died to pay for our sin, and he rose to reign completely. He has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. That is why we trust in him. That is why we live for him. Because he is Lord of all. Every power is in submission to him. It doesn't matter if our enemies are human or demonic. None of them can take away the reward Jesus has promised us. And when the day of God's judgment comes, we will come safely through that judgment because our risen Savior is our refuge. Baptism reminds us of that. And God's word promises us that. And so going back to our first question, why, why would we turn aside from all this just to escape some short-term discomfort, some short-term suffering? Why would we forsake all this just to gain some short-term reward? Surely the eternal blessings we have in Jesus are worth more than this whole world and everything in it. And if you and I believe that, then let's live like we believe it. Let's turn from evil and do good. Let's be ready to give a simple answer when we're asked about this hope we have. Jesus did the work. He's my guarantee of a priceless future. That's why I live this way. I'm living for eternal reward. When we say that, some people will laugh, some people will hate us, but some of them might join us. 
And as Christians, let's remember, we are to help one another with this. For trusting in Jesus, we're on the same team, all of us, as different as we are. We're all going in the same direction. So let's help one another along. And let's join together now in responding to God's word. We're going to do that as we sing to our Savior, all I once held dear. None of it is worth knowing Jesus. Jesus.